Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachet Ketubot, DAP Kuf Yud Aleph, page 111. Well, we're in the final two DAPim of this Masachet, and I'm going to begin with a Gemara that's really, you know, I would put up there as one of the more famous Gemaras that actually impacts um, our life today. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit more why, but it begins on the bottom of the previous DAP. Rabbi Zerah Hayak Kamishta meet Mine the Rav Yehuda the Bayil Messiah Eretz Yisrael. So remember, we're in the middle of a discussion about people wanting to live in Israel, and that you can essentially force your family to move to Israel. And Rabbi Zerah, the Gemara relates to us, was avoiding being seen by his teacher Rav Yehuda because Rabbi Zerah wanted to move to Eretz Yisrael, and his teacher didn't think that was something a person should do. And the Gemara will explain why. Right? That so this is a huge difference from what this the Mishnah taught us. This is this teaching of Rabbi Huda is anybody who goes from Babel to Eretz Yisrael actually transgresses a positive commandment. Because what does it say? And he quotes here a Pasuk from Yermiahu, chapter 27, verse 22. So it's talking about the exile that took place after the first Beit HaMikdash. And it says they shall be taken to Babel and they will remain there until I recall them, until Hashem recalls them. So what Ruv Huda basically holds is that since the Babylonian exile, since the exile, the Galut of Bayat Rishon, right, there's a divine decree that you, that you need to have specific permission to leave Babel to go to Eretz Yisrael. So if you are a Jew who happens to be born in Babel, you can't leave unless God actually gives you a direct command. Now, it's interesting that it's framed as you are over in a mitzvah to say because he's not quoting something from the Torah, from the five books. He's quoting something from now. Um, but this is how he held, and it will get explained a little bit more why this was the case. But Rabbi Zerah, how did he interpret this verse? He held that this was written about the, temp, about the vessels the cliche rate, the service vessels that were used in the temple, meaning it doesn't refer to the Jewish people because the previous pasuk in Yirmiyahu, uh, verse 21, talks about that the vessels have to remain in the house of the Lord. So what Rabbi Zerah says is, is that it's talking about that the vessels can only be brought back once Hashem gives permission. So according to Rabbi Zerah, you could go back to Eretz Yisrael if you wanted. For Rabbi Yehuda, so then the question is, how would Rabbi Yehuda respond to Rabbi Zera's argument of what, what these psukim are talking to, that it's referring to the clay shared and not to people? Ketiv kra There's another pasuk that writes this, and here he quotes a pasuk from Shir Hashirim, chapter 2, verse 7. Hishpati yitzchem b'no Yerushalayim b'tzvaot o bayalot hasadah. Right? I, 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 how would you translate hishpati, Anne? Um, um, a jewer. Right, a George. Make English, you swear. I make you swear, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the hinds of the field. And the rest of us who talked about the you not awaken or stir up love until it please. In other words, what Rabbi Yehuda says here is that there's no geula, right? There can't be redemption until Hashem wants there to be redemption. Because in this pasuk, he makes the benot Yerushalayim promise that they will not do an act of love unless they're called upon, okay, by the lover. But Rabbi Zerah, so he maintains it's that Jews, when they're in Eretz Yisrael, 
shouldn't go as a wall. They shouldn't go in mass. In other words, individuals can go, but 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 groups of people should not. Large groups shouldn't go together. Rav Yehuda, he's Fati Achrina Katev. And so, what does Rav Yehuda say to this? He says that when it says "I adjure you," he's Fati. It's in the singular. That means even for individuals. For Rabbi Zera, and according to Rabbi Zera, right? Hachumi Baile. How does he explain this, right? So he says this was necessary according to a teaching of Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Hanina, right? Because the word hishpati, sorry, excuse me, this I didn't explain well, gets repeated. We see it in a variety of contexts in Shir Hashirim. And so the question is, why does hishpati, what does that word need to be repeated in Shir Hashirim? So, and it's repeated three times in chapter uh, two, verse seven, chapter three, verse five, Chapter eight, verse four. So the question that they asked that Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Hanina says to Amar, why were there three oaths that needed to take place? What are the three oaths of Shirachirim? One is that Jews should not go to Eretz Yisrael as a wall. In other words, they have to go little by little. The second one is that Hashem made the Jews promise they would not rule. They would not rebel against the the being under the rule of the other nations of the world. And the third shvua, the third one was an oath that Hashem made the nations of the world take that they would not subjugate the Jews excessively. They wouldn't be bad to them excessively. Rav Yehuda, right? And how does Rav Yehuda respond to all of this? Im Right. It also is written in right the continuation of that pasuk in Shirashim, chapter two, verse seven, is that you not waken or stir up love. So, in other words, the shvua that specifically has to do with Eretz Yisrael seems to be a little bit stricter, right? Because it's specifically saying you really can't. It has to come from Hashem specifically. For Rabbi Rabbi Levi. So, what does Rabbi Zera say about the extra emphasis that's put on this phrase in the pasuk? He explains it like Rabbi Levi. There were six, there are six oaths, right? The three that are in the 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 psukim we talked about, and then three that are in this verse of the three that we talked about. right? And what are the other three? right? Those who know when the end of days will happen should not reveal its date. You should not distance yourself from the end of days by saying that it's still far away. In other words, you should always behave in a way, hope that the end of days could come, even if you think the date is very far away. And you should not reveal that secret of the Jews to the other nations. Now, this is a very interesting passage of Gemara, and it's essentially the passage that is used uh, by Hasidim, and I know you're going to talk about this a little bit more, as to sort of why sort of the state of Israel or modern day Aliyah is frowned upon because of these three oaths. Now, the counter to that is, is that when one of those oaths is, is that the non-Jews were not allowed to oppress us in such a terrible way. And one can make the argument, well, the Holocaust was so beyond anything, they sort of broke, broke that oath. So therefore the oath about all these oaths now are broken. Like these oaths do not hold true anymore. And I, I know you wanted to say something specific about the Satmar Rebbe here. Yeah, I mean, he's the one who really popularized this, um, the treatment of the modern state of Israel or even the 
potential for the modern, st modern state of Israel, because it was, you know, just at the beginnings of the modern state, um, to say that it was in violation of these three oaths. He was born in, he was born in Siget, right, which was then Hungary, now it's Romania. Other famous people from that place are, you know, include Elie Wiesel and Rev, uh, Professor uh, David Weiss-Halivni. But the point is that he was in an enclave. He grew up in an enclave. He became uh, an adult in an enclave. And and his idea was, you know, stay in Europe and be very, um, very insular, very isolated. That is the way the Satmar have always functioned, right? With with extra levels of tzniyut, with extra levels of safeguarding themselves against pop culture and so on. So this idea that they couldn't move to Israel was, I think, largely because, you know, it was going to be a secular Zionist state. But the Zionism itself was, you know, a separate issue, meaning or or a compounded the issue. It wasn't just that he didn't want to like go live in some, I don't know, Paris, right, which was going to be too secular of a place as compared to the little village in in Hungary. But this was the three oaths, meaning he felt that it was that that by making a modern state, in contrast to the view that you've just said, Yordana, um, that it was pushing, that it was pushing at the door and and premature. And therefore it was in violation of these three oaths. And then in that case, then moving to Israel, moving, as you say, en masse, meaning settling in Israel becomes a violation of the Torah instead of uh, preservation or keeping of the Torah. He himself did come to Israel, meaning he, he lived in Israel for about a year after the war. And then even after the state of, you know, when Israel was really a state, he came now and again because of that point that you said about individuals as compared to the people or settling. Um, but some are even today, you know, are known to be, um, I, not, it's not a, it's not just about anti the secular state, but that they're not going to bring themselves en masse to live in Israel and then kind of ignore ignore the rest of um, like there are Hasidim who live in Israel who have no problem living in Israel who then kind of ignore the fact that there's a secular government going on and they're not they would not call themselves Zionist but they don't have a problem settling here and living here. A lot of this becomes, you know, the mix of ideology and post-Holocaust survival that I think gets gets really complicated. Yeah, um, so we had to read this passage. We just we couldn't. It, it's a very, very famous passage. And there's um, so much strife today still because of this then. Yes, because of this particular passage. All right. You're going to move on to Tzachiasa Mason. But before you get to that, the one other thing I want to point out is on this stop is specific mention about Ula, who we've talked about many times, who's a very famous Amora who used to go often back and forth to Eretz Yisrael. And the Gemara relates here the story that he died outside of Eretz Yisrael. He used to go all the time, right? But he died outside of Eretz Yisrael. And so it, it mentions here that they came to Rabbi Elazar, tells him that, you know, Ula passed away. And he says, like, it's sad for him. You know, he quotes his pasuk, like he understood, like he... He really loved Eretz Yisrael and he died outside of Eretz Yisrael. And they say to him, well, he's going to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, so it's okay. And he said, yeah, but still, you know, there's a piece of him. This is somebody, right? They just de describe him as he says to them, right? There's something different about being absorbed by Eretz Yisrael while you're alive versus when you are dead. So it just, we always mention these stories about Ula where Ula comes back and relays a teaching when he comes back from Eretz Yisrael, and this sort of gives the end to that, which is sort of sad that he didn't actually bury there, but he didn't actually die there. Okay, on to Tzachiyah Sametim. 
Okay, just very briefly, and then I'm going to touch on a couple of points from Ahmed Bet. We have here, I'm jumping a bit from this the passage about Ula. We've got a statement from Rebel Azar. Amar Rebel Azar, metim shebuchutz laaretz einam chayim. So, though, and it follows from the point about Ula, right? Those who die in Chutzlars outside of the land of Israel, the, it says that they they are not alive, but that doesn't mean literally that they're dead. We already know that. It means that they will not come alive again to be resurrected. I will set the glory, right, in the land of the living. It's a verse from Yechezkel, chapter 26, the book of Ezekiel. Eretz she'tzivyoni ba metim chayim she'en tzivyoni ba Point being that the land which contains this is like God's desire. Um, those that's where the the dead will come alive. But outside of that land, they will not come alive. And of course, this is I, I want to be careful here, right? This is not sakalacha, right? This is really um, eschatological philosophizing about the end of days kind of thing, or or. Uh, you know, I mean, what happens to each person after they've died? And of course, we're going to have an objection to Rebbe's statement. Mativ, Rebbe Abba Barmemel, Rav Abba Barmemel, you know, contradicts or rejects this idea. He says, There's a pasuk in Yeshayahu, the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. Ironically enough, also chapter 26, which says, "Your dead will live; my dead bodies will rise." My love, Yechiyu Metecha, Metim Sheba Eretz Yisrael, Nevelta Yikomun, Metim Sheba Chutzla Eretz, meaning what half of the verse refers to those who've died in the land of Israel, and half the verse refers to those who've died outside the land of Israel. Umay, Benatati Tzvi Eretz Chaim, and how are you going to deal with the first verse, the Yechezkel verse? Um, Anvuchad Netzer, it's an interesting way of spelling the Vuchad Netzer on this particular line. So it says says that there's a verse that was written about Nebuchad Netzer where Hashem says, I will bring upon you a king, the Khalil Kitavia, who is as fast as swift as a deer, as that Tzvi. Meaning, it's a complete reinterpretation of the verse from Yechezkel, and it means something totally different. Don't apply it to the dead where they die, when they die in Chutzlars anyway. Um, and, you know, whatever. There's a, The discussion goes on between Rebels and Rebbe, Rav Abba Barmemo, which I think is valuable, right? They're not treating this as a light subject. It is the opposite of a light subject. I'm just, in the interest of time, wanting to move on to Ahmed Aleph, so, and we did say, Yardana, we did, that we could read the entirety of this stuff, you know, in, yeah, if it I, weren't I for the interest of time. That within this discussion, you know, it's mentioned this thing about Yudzei Gilgul, like how do the righteous who are in Chutzla'aretz, you know, outside of Israel, how did they get there? And, you know, they roll to Israel, right? What that means, we don't know. But this is the source for the custom for a lot of people to want to be buried in Israel itself, because the idea is when Tzachiyar Amitim comes, you'll need to do a lot less rolling. Right, you want to avoid that. Those you say it a lot, but that's actually the basis for it. Yeah, and but I know, I know people who are, you know, because they're traumatized as children about this idea of the rolling bones, because because it sounds really unnerving. Yeah. Um, no pun intended. Okay, very quickly on Ahmed Bet, we have a statement from Reb Chia Bar Yosef, and this is, I think, maybe the more positive side of things. I'm a Reb Chia Bar Yosef. Atidin tzadikim she v'olin in the future, at the time of Tchiat HaMetim, that's when the righteous will burst forth and they will go up to Jerusalem or they will come up, arise in Jerusalem. And again, we have a verse, 
They will blossom out of the city like the grass of the earth. Once you have the word city, like you don't, without an identification, it clearly means Jerusalem. And another verse from the book of Kings, our second Kings, that in fact teaches us this point that obviously the city, um, sorry, New Yorkers, the city means Jerusalem. Let's just pause there. I think that's like a big mind shift for a lot of people. I remember that. From now on, when I say the city, I mean Jerusalem. Amen to that. Again, the future, the tzaddikim will stand up from their graves in their clothes, which is like the most dramatic, picturesque thing. And I want to like dispel any notion of zombies here, right? Like it's not a gruesome picture as much as it's supposed to be to their glory, right? And so it says, it's an it's a kavachomer. We learn it, you know, in this inference kind of way from wheat. What does it mean from wheat? Machita shenigbara aruma. The same way that wheat is buried naked, meaning just the kernel, the seed of the wheat itself. luvushim. And then when you when it grows, it grows in all these different layers of of straw and chaff and so on, right? So how much more so? Tzadikim shenigbaru baluvushehen. If we're going to bury people in their clothing to begin with, and when they emerge from the ground again, they will be that much, you know, how much more so than the wheat, which is a little bit of a strange comparison here. But I think if we remember that wheat and bread, for that matter, is considered the staff of life, then perhaps it's a little bit more um, palatable. Again, no puns intended. A third statement from him, Atida Eretz Yisrael Shetotzi Uluskaot Vachleimelit so says in the future and again meaning the future times like these when the dead come to life um, are resurrected then Eretzishol will produce cakes the land will just make cakes and wool clothing meaning already made as opposed to having to work for it and to go through all the steps of crafting the product it, it'll already just be ready and it comes from this verse Yehi Pisat Bar Ba'aretz verse in Tehillim Mizmor uh, 72 where pisat is supposed to be connected to the ketonet pasim, of of which is the refers to Yosef's coat of many colors, right? The idea that it had stripes or or some such. And bar in that verse, he pisat bar bar can mean bread. So the idea that in the future there will be, you know, it'll be already ready for everybody, the clothing and the food. And lastly, one more little passage. I'm jumping. Um, Within Amabet, it says, we've got a statement here, Vidam Enav Tishtechem Chamer. It says the idea that blood, the blood of the grape, what do you mean the blood of the grape? The juice of the grape. What's the juice of the grape? The wine, right? You drank foaming wine. Amru, lo ba'olam hazeh, lo ka'olam hazeh, a'olam haba. The world to, this world is not like the world to come. A'olam hazeh, yesh bo tsa'ar, liv tsur, v'lidroch, a'olam haba, mevi anava, so it says, in this world, you have to work. There's suffering, there's trouble to, to harvest the grapes, right? To harvest and to, to trample them, right? To do what you need to do, to press them, to do what you need to do get, to get wine. In the world to come, it says that you'll be able to take just one grape and you stick it even in the corner of a house or on a corner of a boat. You put it there and, and this like diagonal of the home, right? Um, 
and it will provide enough, it will supply enough for the amount that would fill a large jug, that kiput pitus gadol. And then you'll be able to use the wood from it to make a fire under just, a, you know, for when you're cooking your food. And every grape will produce no less than 30 full jugs of wine. Can you imagine your Dana? One grape is going to give you 30 full jugs of wine. The idea being this verse, right, specifically that the blood of the grape, again, blood of the grape, namely, you're going to drink this foaming wine. Don't drink, don't, don't read the word as foaming wine, but rather as chomer, which is a measurement, which means, meaning, I think of chomer meaning raw materials, but in this case, it means specifically a measurement, and that measurement equals 30 sa'ah, and 30 sa'ah gives you those 30 jugs of wine. So, I, you know, what's interesting is, as much as the daf begins with, uh, you know, this sort of view of Rabbi Yehuda that, like, you can't really go to, you know, Rabbi Yehuda, that you're not really supposed to go up to Eretz Yisrael, the rest of the daf, you know, based on this, is going to go through different descriptions of Amurayim who visited Eretz Yisrael and were just astounded by the bounty, uh, the vegetation, what grew there, how beautiful it was. And, you know, we don't have time to read it all, but there's beautiful descriptions here of how lovely Eretz Yisrael was. Um, I think it's also, yeah, go ahead. No, I just think it's interesting, the contrast of the two, that we sort of start off in a very dark place, but we end up in a very beautiful place, really highlighting how beautiful the land actually is. Like there's something, I think that's always the thing about Eretz Yisrael. It's not just that it's like, it's a commandment to live there, but there's something like inherently beautiful about the nature, about the land itself. I agree. I mean, I personally agree. I think also though that this passage kind of like answers up the issues of the Muraglim, the spies in Sefer Bamidbar. A hundred percent, yes. In the book, and yes. the book of Numbers where they're coming with, and they're complaining, right? They come back and they're scared and the grapes are too big and everything is giants. And the answer is like, Hello, that's that's the bounty of Eretz Yisrael, and that's what the land is going to produce in that in that measure, in that you know great amount, um, you know, in the future, in that time in the future when when these things can happen. Yes, that was right. It's definite that this is sort of like a counter to the Moraglim. Well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff in our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.